Welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices mini-pod. The COVID pandemic caused authorities across the world to consider more pervasive digital tracking tools to monitor the spread of the disease. In a number of countries, a libertarian culture arguably restricted the potential of digital health monitoring tools and platforms to be as effective as they might have been. But were the libertarian views on such pervasive technologies well-founded? It's a question that strategic communicator and futurist Gina Clifford considers in her chapter in the book, Aftershocks and Opportunities 2, Navigating the Next Horizon. Gina, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about you and your work. Thank you, Steve. Well, as you uh, suggested, I am a global strategic communicator and I am a futures thinker. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what if for the future. So I like to think about how technology intersects with the social constructs in our culture. And there are lots of people who believe that technology makes everything better. And my story kind of gives you a little bit more nuance into that. And it's like, well, it makes things a lot better for some people, but there are always other people that are left behind. Yeah, that resonates really strongly with me. It's, it's so easy to forget that technology is just a tool and isn't the main thing that perhaps we should be thinking about. And that also triggered a thought in my mind that I found it really interesting how the pandemic started off as a health crisis, evolved into a social crisis via an economic crisis. So, you know, what you were saying and really strongly resonated with me. So in your chapter in the book, which is very provocative, which I love, you outlined a quite challenging future. So take us through the key elements of that future. Okay, let me start with how I looked at this opportunity to tell a story. I, first of all, I used uh, a couple of vehicles to make this provocative. I started with something known as the Four Futures Framework. And that's a common framework used by futurists. And it, you, know, it can, you can have four different scenarios. One is business as usual, one is constraint, one is absolute collapse, and the other one is transformation. And so I selected the transformation where everything gets, I won't say better, there's a lot more growth, right? Exponential growth. And so I then used speculative fiction to kind of bring that story to life of transformation. And so in my story, global governments have collaborated on a platform to help track new infections and other things, uh, health issues with the citizenry, right? And of course, with global government collaboration, things got better for a lot of people, right? Uh, Services were integrated and uh, things were more easily across boundaries more easily um, conducted business-wise. So there was a lot more growth, but also along with that growth, also the technologies that we have today continue to develop in drone technology and sophisticated sensor technology for surveillance. And that's where the trouble begins. And so, yes, the story kind of takes you through a, a person's experience. The person in my story might be an immigrant in in a country where immigration isn't necessarily something positive for other people in that culture. 
And so what would an experience of a person in that situation be in this scenario? It's, it's a really interesting study, isn't it, of how giving up some liberty might be seen as supporting trying to achieve a greater good, but the fallout is maybe the result of some unexpected consequences. I, I think we've seen evidence of this in different ways in the past mm. few years. And I think that, you know, being a futurist, if you think about what's happening now, if that continues to expand and grow as an ideology, then, you know, some of this, some people may look at this scenario and say that will never happen. But a lot of people thought this pandemic would never happen. Yes. <laughs> and it, it, it's in the realm of possibility and considering a lot of the signals that we're seeing and some of the past activities that have happened that we, a lot of us were really shocked to see that I don't believe that this feature scenario was that far-fetched. That's, that's a really nice segue into the next question I was going to ask you actually. So how near or how far from your 2025 scenario do you consider our world is right now? So I'll, I'll be honest, the purpose of the story was not to predict an, a possible future. It was really just to illuminate, like I said, if you take something that's happening right now and you escalate that, it continues to grow. The ideology continues to grow. The technology continues to grow. Uh, it was just kind of pulling those levers and then using the character to see how people might react to, yeah. to kind of to illustrate that. However, uh, with that being said, just this week, the US government had uh, a big summit and they invited over a hundred different countries and over a hundred different organizations. And it's you know largely around how do we collaborate on COVID-19 to make the world more resilient. And you know, it's a lot of it's around vaccines and getting the vaccine to most to more people quicker. So a goal of 70% of the world will be vaccinated by next year. But one of the parts of that plan is very clearly marked. Uh, let's see, how was it? Uh, health infrastructure architecture and security. And those words are very provocative to me because that would tell me data platform or some kind of an online platform so at some level, there's some collaboration with an online platform around health, security, and architecture. And honestly, it could be some form of kind of what I'm proposing, you know, maybe not at that exact format, but there's elements of it already developing. So I'm not saying that I've predicted it or anything, but You're I can see how be building to that. I mean, build, building on your point about understanding where we are now uh, in order to support development of scenarios, then what you're actually describing in that scenario is doable with existing technologies. So it's how we use the tools that we have and whether the ability and willingness of authorities to change the use of those tools creates that kind of more surveilled world in the future, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, honestly, there are lots of examples in this world right now of surveillance states and cameras being used in China is a great example. There's millions of cameras <laughs> across the country. Um, and and you know, they've stated a goal of social, there's a social credit. They're, they're actually trying to 
craft a certain culture. And, um, I, you know, I don't really want to say that that's where this is headed, but it's definitely doable, like you said. And it's honestly you know, the only thing that we have that we can control is our will to make sure it's equitable for everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So the scenario that you've painted then is, is based on, you know, which we kind of alluded to a couple of times, a sort of a worrying view of the future. It's, it's plausible, it's not a prediction, but we can use that insight, can't we, to change the decisions that we might make now. So what do you think needs to happen for us to achieve a more positive outcome than the one painted out in the scenario in 2025? What are the kind of key levers that we need to pull? I think there are three things that I see right off the top that could be done to help just remediate some of the most atrocious things that it could be done with uh, this power and the tools that are gonna probably be in place. And I think it starts with inclusion and diversity. And, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of the uh, 100, over 100 uh, public and private companies were invited to this US uh, global summit this past week. And I think that what I've seen is there's a lot more attention on diversity and inclusion within private companies right now, because it makes good financial sense. So bringing more people that don't look like the people that are already leading the company add value to that company. But what that also does is it also allows people to that get into the organization that don't look like the people that are mostly there now to start to design and build things for people that look like them instead of the default. And I think that that's a step in whatever gets built, those folks can be kind of a, the people that have empathy for the folks that are ultimately going to be part of the system. I think another part of this is um, every time that there's a market opportunity for something like this, it doesn't grow unless there's money to be made. Yeah. So either the private industry or governments, the bottom line is people don't want to push it forward unless they can make money because that's how our system works. So there does have to be robust privacy policies put in place early on that recognizes the opportunities there are to do the various things with this information, right? And I think that that has to come in at the beginning an intense, you know, human-centered design, systematic analysis of like what I'm doing, you know, play those scenarios out, yeah. try to figure out where things might come out, the threats are, and try to design for them. And lastly, I think government uh, ultimately will own this across the world. And there needs to be consequences for people that do bad things with this information and with this technology. And I think that the government has the ability and they have a responsibility to put rigorous laws and rules in place to monitor the data and the usage of it and penalize people that are not using it the way it was intended. And I, I'm sure there's a lot more. Those are the things that rose out for me. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of last piece you said there, and, and particularly the, the driver of if there's money to made, that money to be made, then things will happen. I think the that leading on from that, that that really causes me to think about, so what does the balance look like 
between corporations and the government in future. So does it kind of change the need to readdress the balance of power that Facebook has compared to, to many governments? And the other thing I suppose is, how do we then put in place appropriate governance and guidance to help manage perhaps the international sharing of some of that information? So there are lots and lots of complicated factors at play there, aren't there? Yeah, I think that that could almost be another scenario if you were using a futures framework mm. to kind of say, play that out. What would that look like when you're bringing big private organizations in with, you know, governments? How, how, how does that look? How does that look to governments? How does that look to the citizenry? I can see huge upsides to it. I mean, honestly, to reduce the friction of time, of getting information, to make decisions about the world. I actually think that we need that to solve climate change. It's the same kind of collaboration. So there's lots of opportunities and, and I could easily have written that story. But I think that's a story that almost, you know, it's almost too easy. But the hard part is where, what are we missing? What are we not seeing? And that's where, you know, the underbelly of um, the corruption that could happen, the greed that could come into it, where does that come in? Because if you have all the obvious uh, benefits of this technology that we've already, we're already enjoying in lots of parts of the world, what's going to keep us from growing that even further? So that ultimately the goal would be that transformation scenario is a wonderful scenario and we've mitigated all of those bad things out of the out of the scenario that that's my goal that's my dream right i i think that dream of that uh, much more utopian perspective of the future where we have managed to use um uh, that technology to achieve good outcomes for everyone and in essence changed if you like behaviors internationally to to ensure that happen is a is a lovely place to uh, to leave it Gina, thank you so much for your time. Tell us, how can people contact you, get hold of you to learn more about what you do? Yeah, definitely. Uh, probably the best way is my email. It's gina.clifford at gmail.com. That's G-I-N-A dot C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D at gmail.com. Well, Gina, once again, thank you so much for your time. That was um, really brilliant and I really enjoyed your scenario. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices mini pod, and there'll be another episode along very soon.